Have you ever wondered how one voice can be heard over an entire orchestra or about the science that's involved in operatic singing? Well, today we're going to explore the physics of acoustics to explain how that's possible. Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. If you like the content that we're putting out and you'd love to see more, make sure you subscribe to our channel as well as share it with all your friends. take some rather complex concepts and explain them and try and boil them down to make them understandable in this podcast format. I don't want to blind anybody with science. She blinded me with science. I'm going to start with a few definitions first. Sound isn't something that we can see or necessarily hold unless it's in a recorded format. And the same goes for the air. Air is a gas and it's made up of individual molecules that are comprised of oxygen, nitrogen, argon, and some other elements. Sound is an oscillation within a medium. In this particular setting, in most times that you hear sound, it's in air. You may have noticed that at loud concerts or driving by a semi that you can actually feel the sound that's being created. And that's because the sound wave is being transferred along from one molecule to another until it runs out of energy. When it comes to music, there are pitches involved. And pitches require compression and rarefaction to be periodic. That means occurring at regular intervals. Another name for a pitch is a frequency. Frequency is a number of periods that occur each second within a sound wave. Frequencies are measured in hertz. The lower the pitch, the longer the wavelength, the higher the pitch, the shorter the wavelength. And wavelength influences directionality of sound. Higher pitches with short wavelengths travel in a straight line and therefore can be reflected in another direction if they encounter an obstacle. Whereas longer wavelengths are less directional and they tend to bend around objects and continue on their original path. This is why when your neighbors are playing really loud music, you can hear and feel the bass, but you might not actually hear the rest of the music because those wavelengths are much longer and um, can travel around objects easier. Another detail about sound that I thought we should talk about, because we are discussing unamplified singing, is um, the speed of sound and how it's dependent on temperature, humidity, and elevation. At room temperature, the speed of sound is 345 meters per second. And we know that sound travels faster in warm air, but further in cold air in the same acoustic environment. Um, If you've ever been near a large body of water on a clear, cold day, uh, you've got a couple things going on, but you'll notice that sound travels 
farther. You can hear things that you didn't hear on other days. Wind and other things can also play into this, but a lot of it has to do with the cold air being trapped near the ground and warmer air above and how that causes uh, a reflection of sound back down towards you. And then you also have the water is a reflective surface that's reflecting sound. And of course, the temperature being another uh, factor. I just wanted to talk about that shortly as each theater or each environment that you might hear an unamplified singer in. So when we think about musical pitches, um, we often talk about them in terms of fundamental frequency. And the fundamental frequency is the lowest frequency in a complex sound wave. For examples, most orchestras tune to concert A or A4 on a piano, which is 440 hertz. That means there are 440 oscillations in a single second. There are additional frequencies that you hear when a musical pitch is played that are higher than the fundamental, and these are called overtones. Sometimes people call them harmonics, but harmonics are overtones that are a whole number multiples of the fundamental frequency. And that leads us into something called the harmonic series. For any fundamental frequency, the first 12 harmonics can be present in the following intervallic pattern in an ascending order. The first one is unison, then an octave, a perfect fifth, perfect fourth, a major third, a minor third, a minor third, a major second, another major second, followed by another major second, a major second, and a minor second. Of course, these are the relative uh, distances because our idea of intervals is based on an equal temperament tuning system, which means that the distance between pitches is equal, but we know that when they occur naturally and not using a piano, um, for the basis of studying harmonics, that they may be slightly higher or slightly lower than the 100 cents that is between every whole step. Okay, with all of those definitions out of the way, don't worry, there are more to come. Let's talk about singing. What is involved in singing. So in order for singing to occur, we need four things. We need a fuel source, a sound source, a resonator, and filters. When that comes to the body, our fuel source is air. Our sound source comes from the larynx, particularly the vocal folds colliding together. How many times per second? Creates a different pitch. The resonator is the entire vocal tract, which includes the trachea, the pharynx, the nasopharynx sometimes, if you're singing nasally, the mouth. That's a lot. And then the filters, which involves the glottis or the vocal folds and the tongue and the mouth. I don't think we really need to talk about the air, although air pressure does have an effect on pitches. We're going to talk about the sound source first, the vocal folds. Uh, They vibrate against each other, colliding, create a pitch. So if I'm going to sing middle C, my vocal folds are going to vibrate 256 times a second. Or if I was going to sing high C, it would be closer to 1,200 times a second. Imagine, just it's like having a little hummingbird in your throat. (laughs) Now, the resonator, our throat. When it comes to singing unamplified, the geometric shape of the throat plays a large role in the resonant 
frequencies that produce a particular sound. Can influence the timbre. It can influence and perceived loudness of the output sound. Perhaps the most complex concept that I'm going to talk about is formants. And formants are often confused with resonance frequencies, but they are not the same thing. Formants are peaks in spectral envelope output. Uh, Yeah, I don't really have a better way to simplify that. So just go with me here. These peaks and output are closely related to resonant frequencies of the vocal tract, and they play a role in how singers boost their sound when it comes to unamplified singing. And even the naming of singers' formant has its controversies. (laughs) So traditionally, it is defined as a clustering of the third, fourth, and fifth vocal tract formants together to give extra amplification to the harmonics between, excuse me, between 2.4 and 4,000 hertz. Now, there has been new research done in the last five or six years that has been focusing on higher voice singers and how they may have a similar clustering, but at higher frequencies, somewhere between five and 9,000 K hertz. Okay, formants, resonance frequencies. Let's not get them confused. What does all that mean? All that means is we're boosting the energy of the signal around three to 4,000 hertz. Why is that so important when it comes to unamplified singing? Two reasons. The first reason is that actually human hearing is most sensitive between two and 5,000 hertz. Our Our ear canals have a resonant frequency around 3,000 hertz and That's why sometimes when you hear particular sounds or pitches, it feels like it hurts because your ear canal is actually resonating or vibrating uh, sympathetically. And two, orchestras, their sound energy output peaks at 2000 hertz, which means when a singer is using the resonance of their vocal tract to boost this signal, they are higher than the orchestra and also playing into the sensitivity of our human hearing. Let's talk about the perceived loudness that a singer gets from using singer's resonance. Loudness is a psychoacoustic term, and that means that is a subjective measurement. And oftentimes when you turn up your stereo, you'll see a little DB, which stands for decibels. And decibels is a measurement of the magnitude or amplitude of a period in a sound wave. The decibel scale is logarithmic, adding 3 dB doubles the total amplitude or um, sound intensity. When we talk about dB, a quiet room is between 40 and 50 dB. Average conversation is around 60 dB. And uh, a jet engine is at like 120 dB, which is loud. An untrained singer usually has a sound intensity reading around 60 to 70 dB. Whereas a singer using singer's formant is going to be between 80 and 95 dB. And that is 100 times the sound intensity and perceived will be about four times louder. I said sound is subjective or loudness is subjective. 
the data about the difference between untrained and trained singers and their uh, sound intensity output comes from a research project called the Overlap of Hearing and Voice Ranges in Singing, which was conducted by Eric Hunter and Ingo Tietze and was published in the Journal of Singing in April of 2005. Uh, just to make a note, Ingo Tietze is, is one of the leading voice scientists in the world. Does a lot of research uh, about singing and about psychoacoustics. Fascinating stuff. But back to what we were talking about. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of the details and the science behind Singer's Formant, but how is it achieved? I'm going to talk just a couple of minutes about this because this is what uh, we as operatic singers do. One of the most important parts of creating Singer's Formant is to make sure that the throat is expanded. And that means that the difference between how I'm talking now I'm not um, thinking about creating a equal resonant space, but if I were to create the space that I create while I'm singing, you can already hear that there is a difference in the sound. There's a difference in timbre and also in volume without even really trying to do anything. Another thing that we do as operatic singers is we lift the soft palate. The soft palate is a piece of flesh that is connected to your uvula, which is that little fleshy bit that you see hanging down in the back of your throat. And when we lift the soft palate, it cuts off the nasal passages, creating a very cone-like structure. If we start at the larynx and go up, we get a gradual opening to the mouth. Now, there are other things that can influence timbre, and actually the way we form vowels A-E-O-U, is mostly playing around with formants and changing the timbre of a sound. The third thing that influences the resonance space is maintaining a relatively stable larynx. If we allow the larynx to rise when we're singing, we are interfering with that resonance space that we've created, we're changing it, we're shortening it, and we want to keep it, the larynx, at a relatively same place. That doesn't mean keeping it exactly in the same place. It will have some amount of fluctuation, and that is in order to keep a minimal amount of tension in the singing, because if you allow unwanted tension to creep into your singing, you start affecting that resonance space. I hope this has been an interesting discussion and that I haven't confused anyone. I really, really spent a lot of time going over this information and trying to think about the best way to boil it down. And if you have any questions, let us know. I I am not a voice scientist. I don't claim to be. I have spent a lot of time reading the research and obviously experiencing how to use Singer's Formant in my job as a performer. Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. Ciao.